0: Praise God. Well, this morning, we're going to go ahead and get started in another series on the, the, one of the books in the Bible. And this morning, we're going to start in in uh, the book of James, in James chapter 1. And as you guys may already know, that this book was written by Jesus' little brother. But you, know, <laughs> but you know what's interesting about James as we read? He's, he's got one of the books in the Bible. But he didn't start out as a believer. Matter of fact, none of Jesus' family believed in him in the beginning. In John 7, 1-5, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And it says, "For not even his brothers believed in him." I mean, that's got to be tough. The people, your family, the people you think you can trust the most, you can have the, you can rely on the most. They have. They should have the most trustworthy relationship with you. Your family is people you can count on, and they didn't even believe in who he was. But I guess, in a way, that's kind of understandable, right? Because you grew up with somebody your whole life. I mean, you've seen them go through everything. You were you were in the bath together. You're doing all those things, and and you don't act like you didn't take a bath with your brother or sister when you were little. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I mean, but they they've seen <laughs> they've seen they've seen every part of each other. They know each other better than anybody else. I mean, they probably, like most brothers, they teased each other, punched each other in the arm, did the whole thing. And now he comes out and they begin to realize that Jesus is more than just their brother. So it had to have been tough. But James starts out as not a believer. But then as time goes by, we see, as we look through the Bible, we see stories as, as James begins to believe. Actually, him and his family. See, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the next place we see James and his and his or see uh, Jesus brothers and sisters is is uh, after Jesus ascended, and he had recently given instructions to wait to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And next we find his brothers right there with the disciples waiting on the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.13-14 it says, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So now we're starting to see a, a change in James' life. He, he went from being an unbeliever, he didn't even believe who Jesus was, and now he believes in his brother. But then we get to see even more change happen. Next we see James begin to to emerge as a leader, one of the leaders of the church. Do you remember when when Peter got imprisoned? It was right after... Uh, James, one of the son of, th- son of Thunders, got killed. And then Peter got thrown in prison. And then he gets broken out by an angel. And he shows up to, to uh, I believe it was <clears throat> uh, John's mother's house. Is that right? Where is it at? Yeah, mother, uh, Mary's house, the mother of John. Shows up at his house, knocks on the door. And a little girl comes to the door. And she thinks he's a ghost. So she shuts the door. She runs away and just leaves him standing outside. But when he, she brings the disciples back, Peter, what does Peter say? Peter says, go tell James what has happened. In Acts 12, 17, it says, But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them, this is Peter, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter, James has now reached a position in the church that he's, he's actually people are reporting to him. Peter saying, hey, go tell him what's going on. So we see James began to grow. We also see that Paul refers to him as one of the pillars of the church. Galatians 2 9 says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. So now we have James who went from an unbeliever to a believer. It's one of the pillars of the church. And actually, do you remember when when uh, Peter was going before the council in Jerusalem and they were arguing over whether the Gentiles needed to be circumcised or not to uphold the law? It was actually James who proclaimed the final judgment. And in Acts fifteen, nineteen, it says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. That was James speaking, the brother of Jesus. So he goes from being an unbeliever all the way to one of the pillars and quite possibly the head pastor of the church that was in Jerusalem. Now the reason I'm giving you this this huge background on who James is, because I think it's good for us to recognize when we're listening to these, to these speakers, the people that are writing these letters in the Bible, that they're not just some guy off the street that came from I mean, this guy was trained. He grew up with Jesus. He became a leader. He knows what he's talking about. When we see somebody like this, how many knows when you see somebody like this, you want to sit down and listen to what they have to say? In this book is James speaking to even the church today, speaking to us. It was initially written to, to uh, the dispersed Jews at the time, but it's still, it's still applicable to us today. And, and actually, some people refer to this book as, a, as kind of like the book of Proverbs of the New Testament because it contains such great and practical wisdom of how we're supposed to live our lives. So with all that background up, let's go ahead and get started. In James 1.1 1, 1 it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Anybody know what the, the dispersion is referring to? Other translations refer to them as the, the ones who were scattered. The dispersion is basically when all the persecution came against the, the church after Jesus ascended, all the, all the Jews just kind of hung around. And the dispersion is the ones that were being persecuted. They fled. They didn't stay there. You know, they wanted to live just like the rest of us. And they, and they fled because of this heavy persecution. In Acts 8, 1 through 4, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. This was when, um, oh, blanking on his name. Who's the one that got stoned that Paul held the coat for? Stephen. Yeah, so this is Paul talking about Stephen. And Saul approved of his execution. Acts 8, 1 through 4. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the the apostles. And it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So that's what we're talking about. These are the... This dispersion. These are the Jews that were, that were scattered because of the persecution. And it's actually pretty interesting because, because the, the scripture here uses the word scattered. And it says they went about preaching the word and then we saw that Jesus referred to the word as a seed. So these men and women are actually out there planting seeds in, in people's lives. And that's who James is, is writing this letter to. You know, it's interesting that this persecution is what actually drove the spread and growth of the church. You see, right after Jesus ascended, everybody just hung out in Jerusalem. You remember what his command was, right? Go out to all the ends of the earth and preach the gospel, make disciples. And they thought he meant Jerusalem, so they just kind of hung out for a while. And then after a while, persecution comes and ends up driving them. They have to run away for their safety. And because of that, the gospel begins to be spread. They begin preaching in other lands. You know, I always find that amazing. I, I wonder why the enemy just doesn't give up. Why does the devil keep trying? He's like, I know how to stop this. I'm going to go in there and I'm just going to persecute and have all of them killed. So instead, he sends them out and preaching the gospel everywhere. What the enemy meant for harm, God turned it into an amazing thing. And it's the reason why the church grew at such a rapid rate. If the enemy, You know, what's funny is if the enemy would have sat on his butt and not done anything nothing would have happened so i just spent what 5 minutes talking about who james was his qualifications where he's out and what i find interesting is is this is how he introduces himself he says james a servant of god and the lord and of the lord jesus christ you know james is a humble guy even on top of that And he begins, the only thing that he, he offers up is his title, his credentials. You know, he could have, I mean, really, he could have, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the brother of Jesus. You've got to listen to me. I'm the leader of the church. you got to listen. I mean, he could have come out there and just begin talking up a big game about who he was. But instead, he only points out that he's a servant of Jesus. He points out that I am under the authority of God and of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, all great leaders are under authority. It's actually where they get their authority from. Authority is passed down through the chain of command. But to James, his, his title wasn't important, only that he was serving God. And I, I take that as an example for myself. You know, that's the way I want to live. I want to make sure that I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just worried about what God thinks about me and serving Him. Amen? So now he begins his letter. He tells who he's talking to, and now he's going to begin the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. And he starts out in James 1, chapter 2, sorry, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you meet all kinds of various trials. It almost makes you wonder if he's ever encountered a trial in his life, right? <laughs> I mean, haven't even went through a trial and went, "This is awesome," and I, <clears throat> I wish it was worse. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, it makes you like, what is he? What is he talking about? It's good. cuckoo <laughs> trials aren't a fun thing. Some trials are just part of being human. Sometimes we, you know, sickness, accidents, disappointments, all to various degrees. Some are because you're a Christian. You're going to face trials just because you're a Christian. Persecutions and spiritual warfare. You see, the enemy is always going to push back when the church is pushing forward. But the truth is that God doesn't ever send these trials into our life. God doesn't ever, God's not the one that's sending calamity, but it's the enemy. But God can use these trials. He said the enemy is going to attack you, he's going to press against you, he's going to push against you, and he wants to kill you, he wants to destroy you. But God wants to take these very things and and turn them around in your life. You guys know we all have the, the biosphere up the road, right? When they, they first did that project, they were able to reenact every single climate that they needed to. I mean, they, deserts, safaris, uh, jungle. I mean, they, did, they were able to do everything, every kind of weather up there. But they were missing one thing, the one thing that they couldn't reproduce, and that was Wind. And what happened was, is these trees as they began to grow and they get and they begin to get taller and bigger, they eventually begin to snap under their own weight. And they learned that the reason why trees grow up strong is because the wind is constantly pushing them back and forth and, and pushing them around as that pressing against them, they grow stronger to withstand the wind. And it's the exact same thing that happens to us in our Christian life, is that. The enemy begins to push on us and press on us and and try to to push you down, but you begin to to get stronger. What the enemy, once again, means for harm ends up being strength in your life. And then there's other kinds of trials. You know those ones that you, you just bring on yourself? Anybody ever had a trial like that? They're pretty much our own doing. Somehow we build an expectation apart from God. And we're like, why am I going through this? When it was our own fault. Like, Why, why do I not have enough money to pay my bills when I, I spent all my money on pay-per-view? And then we're like, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why don't I have any money? When it was our own fault, right? You know, this is one of the, the situations we find ourselves in, and we think that God's not moving, but it's actually our own stupidity that it's causing it. But even in those situations, I want you to know that God has a plan for your life. We need to be wise. We need to do smart things. This is what this book's good about. It's got a lot of, a lot of wisdom for us. James refers to this stuff as testing of your faith. These trials that come against you is testing of your faith. I actually find that really interesting because when we go through trials, our first thought is this is a testing of, of our resolve. It's a testing of our capabilities or our abilities to handle a situation. But it's not. These things that come against you are a testing over your of your faith. And why is that? Because you should never be relying on your own abilities to handle stuff. You should be relying on God always. But he says to go ahead and... and this testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. We need to be steadfast. We need to stand strong when the enemy is pressing against us. We don't need to to give way and go with them. We need to stand strong. I that word, steadfast. Yeah. Well, there's there's many words that are used for it. The uh, the NSB translates the word to endurance, and that's the. The, the act or power of enduring an unpleasant or difficult process or situation without giving away. Enduring, being steadfast. And the tr- when this happens, we, we have a choice. We can get frustrated and upset with God because it's not, our go- and it's not going our way. Or we can continue to keep our faith and hope in Him and grow into the men and women that God wants us to be. and then it says it'll have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. The full effect of our faith growing is turning ourselves into is God turning ourselves into the people that he he called us to be. People who put faith in Jesus and in only Jesus, people that have their faith grow by leaps and bounds and have our ability to withstand anything that comes our way, it increases as we become stronger in the faith. So this is why we're to consider it joy. It's not the trials that we're thankful for. The Bible elsewhere says give thanks in everything, not for everything. But we consider it joy because we know that, one, we're going to win. It doesn't matter what the trial is, we're going to get through it. The The devil's just beating his head against a brick wall. And then the outcome is not that we're destroyed or killed or weakened. The outcome is that we're stronger because of it. That's why we should consider it joy. Amen? And then in James 1.5-8 it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Who here lacks wisdom? I know there's plenty of times that I lack wisdom. If you, don't, if you don't think that you lack wisdom, if you think you got it all figured out, let me read this to you. In 1 Corinthians three eighteen through 20, it says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches wise, the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. See, most of us that, that think that we're, we're wise, that we're, we're thinking earthly wisdom. We've got to figure it out. I know, I know where to invest my money because I, I pay attention to the stock market. I know the best places to shop. You know, we think we're wise because of all these things. But that's not the wisdom that we're looking for. We're looking for the wisdom of God. And the great thing about it is it's such an incredible promise that if we ask God for this wisdom, it says that he gives it to us. If you don't know what to do in a situation, ask God. And then it says he gives it without reproach. Not only does he give it to you, but he gives it without reproach. That makes it even better because he never gives it to you with with disapproval or disappointment. You know, when you come and ask God for wisdom, he's not like, you should know this. He's not disappointed with you. He's not disapproving of you asking for wisdom. I'm so thankful that God doesn't think less of me when I ask for help. But matter of fact, He thinks better of me because I'm trusting him. When you ask God for help, when you're putting your faith in him, you're pleasing him. But when we go to ask God for wisdom, there's a few things that that we need to be aware of, I think. One is that it has to be done in faith. In other words, we believe that God is going to give us that which we ask. In Mark 11:24, it says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. That seems like a backwards order to things. Ask for something and believe that you've already received it? But that's faith. But then you say, Pastor Wayne, what if I ask for something ungodly? Well, see, what happens when we ask for something ungodly is we we begin to find ourselves falling in this double-minded man category. And we'll we'll get into that a little bit more in a few, but when you have your eyes focused on Jesus, when we're in sync with his will for our lives, when when we're leaning on him for understanding, when we're trusting in him, then our priorities, our focus... Our wants and needs are all going to be in accordance with what God wants for our lives. If your eyes are on Jesus, you're not going to be asking for your neighbor's wife. I can promise you that. But this believing that you've received it, even when you don't have it, that's basically what faith is. It's calling things as though they are, even though they aren't. That's faith. That's actually what God did. In Romans four seventeen, it says, "As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom He believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist." This is what what God does. Matter of fact, that's how He created the heavens and the earth. Right? He spoke, and it was. You're like, okay, that makes sense for God. He's God. What does that got to do with us? But you'll find that that's the exact same thing that Jesus talks. One we just talked about, he says, believe as though you've received it. And then in Mark 11, 22 through 23, it says, And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. So now Jesus is saying, say it out loud. Call things that aren't as though they are. And then we go a little bit later into the book of of, uh, 2 Corinthians and when Paul speaks, we find that this is what his disciples did. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4.13, it says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak. That's what faith is about, trusting that God will do what you ask. So the question is, if it's just lip service, if we don't actually believe we're going to receive what we're asking, if we're just saying it so the people around us think, oh, he's super spiritual, what's the point if it's just lip service? Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, without faith it is impossible to please him. So James goes on to say that, that when we doubt, we're actually like a wave driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, you have no footing. You have, you know, a, wind, uh, a wave It's just being pushed by the wind. It can't grab onto anything. It has no footing. It has no solid ground to stand on. It's just pushed in whatever way that the wind wants to push it. And that's what happens to us. Instead of standing on faith, instead of standing on solid ground, we react to every circumstance that we're in. When something is going bad, we let it push us over to one side and do these things as we react to our situation. But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking to stand in faith, to stand against what's pressing against us, pushing against us. James says when you live like that, when you you live a life that, that is only reactionary, where you're only being pushed around by your circumstances... He says, don't expect to receive anything. He says, that person must not suppose to receive anything from the Lord because he is a double-minded man. And you're unstable in all your ways. So you've probably seen this. Christians that raise hell on Saturday night, but they they lift their eyes to heaven on on Sunday morning. Those are unstable people. There's no stability in their lives. That's not a, a house built on solid rock, but a house built on shifted sand. I know in my life, I want to and I will continue to trust God. Because I want to be a stable man. I want to know that whatever I ask from God, I will receive. This is the wisdom that we receive. We listen to the words of James and we, and we enact it in our lives. Then in James 1, 9-11, it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his ex- Exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. How many know that as Christians we need to have a right view of ourselves? And this view of ourselves is based solely on what Jesus has accomplished inside of us. Not our accomplishments, but his accomplishments. See, this is why the lowly man can boast in his exaltation. Because the lowly man has thought wrong of himself his whole life. They're the ones that have been taught their whole life that they're worthless. They've been taught that they're weak. They've been taught that they're ugly, that they have no value that they can't accomplish anything they're unwanted they're unloved that's the people that he's talking about here people that have been told their whole lives that they are nothing so it says yeah they can boast in their exaltation because this is who they thought they were their whole life and they found out that Jesus loves them that he's got a plan for him that he changes them into something completely different see they they, they found out that, that they're loved by God Loved so much that he sent his only son to die for them. Finds out that they're, they're valuable to the tune of Jesus' life. That was the price that was paid for them. They find out that they're beautiful because they're uniquely created by God. And you remember last week we found out that God doesn't make junk. They can accomplish anything in Christ. And they are strong in him. you I know mean, that's a reason to rejoice? They've been exalted from that wrong view of themselves into a right view of themselves. They have the right to rejoice and boast in that. Because they're not boasting in what they accomplished. They're boasting in what Jesus accomplished. And then it says the rich man is to bo- boast in his humiliation. That seems kind of weird. But that's because the rich man is... The rich man that James is talking about right here has also had a wrong view of himself his entire life. See, it seems kind of harsh that you should rejoice in humiliation that they're going to be humiliated. But the point here is that the rich man, this rich man here, has, has placed his his faith in his own abilities his entire life. What does he need God for? Because everything he has ever put his hand to, he's had success. He's rich. He's good looking. It's uber successful. What does he need God for? But then in Jesus, he realizes that none of this matters. Looks, money, success, it's all for nothing, and it won't save him. Paul was a perfect example of this, I think. In Philippians 3, 4 through 11, Paul says this. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more As rubbish. Kind of sounds like that humiliation he should be boasting in, huh? He says, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, that's the rich man. He had all those things going for them, but he, he boasts in his humility. He boasts in being knocked down a peg, realizing that, you know what, none of that matters. Because now I have Jesus, and my righteousness is based solely in him. Because the truth is that all that stuff's gonna pass, right? That's what James is saying here. He said, it's because it's like a flower of the grass, he will pass away all those accomplishments, all those things. It says the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty. Parishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The stuff of this life will pass and none of it will save him if the rich man's life is defined by his pursuits. It says that he will fade away in the midst of them. If, if your life is defined by your pursuits, what you've accomplished, you will fade away in the midst of that. But if your life is defined by Jesus, then you'll have everlasting life. You know, this is why Jesus said it was so hard for the rich man to get into heaven. In Matthew 19, 23-24, it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And to be clear, this doesn't mean only money. This is anyone who desires anything else and places before Jesus Christ you fall in that same boat. In James 1:12, it says, "Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him." Here's what I want you guys to know. The enemy is going to try his hardest to make you fall away. He wants you to fail. He wants you to give up. He wants you to get mad at God and think that God doesn't care. He wants you to think that God is powerless. Truth is, the devil wants your company for eternity. Have you read the end of the Bible yet? <laughs> See, this is what remaining steadfast is about. To stand firm to the end. What he's talking about here, blessed the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's talking about remaining to the end. He's not talking about having a bad day. I want you to know that if you have a bad day, if if you mess up and you sin, the Bible says that we still have an advocate. In 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we're not talking about a bad day here, but what we are talking about is, is standing strong to the end. Not ever being pushed away by the enemy, giving up your faith. Colossians one twenty two through twenty three says he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's what he's talking about remaining steadfast. Our standing before God is secure as long as our faith does not shift from the hope of the gospel. And the truth is, it may not always be easy. There's an enemy who wants to kill you and destroy you. He wants nothing more than to steal your joy, to steal your life out from underneath you. But let's remain steadfast, not letting him have his way. In James 1:13 through16, we get to talk about temptation. That's always a fun subject. James 1:13 through16 says, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers." Temptation is never sent by God. God is not out there trying to to get you to trip up, waiting for you to mess up. But the enemy is going to always try to tempt you and try to to get you to do things that you don't want to do. And I thank God that, while God can and will let us grow through these things. Like we said, these are like the the wind blowing against us so our our, our branches get stronger. You ever heard the, the phrase, faith untested is faith untrusted? That's when we know we have real faith is when we actually come up against things. It's, it's easy to say, I have faith when nothing is, is going wrong, when everything is perfect. It doesn't, doesn't require a whole lot of faith in that situation. And I'm so glad that, that, this, uh, that James wrote this down. He says, God cannot be tempted and he himself tempts no one. It's very clear that God does not do the tempting, but so many times we hear people think that God is punishing them, God is doing this thing, God is testing them. And it's just not true. God doesn't do that to his children. It's the enemy who does these things. God is not gunning for you to fail. It's the enemy that's gunning for you to fail. It's also one of those things where Anybody ever heard somebody say, well, God made me this way? I've heard that for, especially for a lot of lifestyle sins we're seeing today. You know, people said that, oh, a homosexual's brain works different. They're hardwired that way. God God has made them that way. Kleptomaniacs. They have the inability to refrain from the, the urge to steal. Can they make that same claim? In today's society, we'd be like, oh, it's, it's okay for a kleptomaniac to, to steal because God made him that way. That's absurd, but, we, but people make the same argument for something like homosexuality. No, I thank God that if somebody is, is homosexual, that God loves them and that he has a place for them and that he can free them from that bondage. They have something called brain plasticity, which is the... The brain's ability to change physically, functionally, and chemically throughout life. Relatively recent research shows that our brains can and do change the work, the way that they work throughout our life based on how we use it. You know, they do scan to the brain and goes, oh, it's different for them. Well, yeah, that can change. The truth is that it's our own lusts that carry us away. Because to lust is an intense emotion of desire in our bodies, and it's not always sexual. You guys know that there's, there's lust that's not sexual? We can lust after other things. We have many desires. You know, we all have a, a desire to eat, and more so in this church than others. Desire to sleep. We have a desire to drink. We have desire to be sexual. To be happy and content. All of these are normal desires. But if they're allowed to grow out of control and the temptation to sin is there, when they turn into lust instead of just healthy desires. The desire to eat and drink is normal, but gluttony is a sin. The desire to rest is normal, but laziness is a sin. Sexual desires are normal, but to act on them outside of the marriage covenant is a sin. The desire to be loved, content, and happy is normal. Fulfilling that in any other way than Jesus is sin. And then often at times in our life, that ugly old man rears his head, right? The man we used to be. We, we take a moment and forget that we've been made brand new and that old man tries to sneak back into our life. Things we used to do began to tempt us. You know, letting these things go unchecked and not reasserting who we are in Jesus Christ, that can lead to sin. You see, the, the word there for enticed and lured, it's it's comes from the Greek verb to to catch or to bait, like to catch a fish with bait. And that's what temptation is. The enemy's throwing out his line, waiting for you to take a bite so he can reel you in. The enemy knows what the enemy knows what tempts you. The enemy knows the right bait to pick for you. And the, the bait for me is not the same as the bait for you. The same, you know, you don't catch a catfish with the same bait that you catch a trout. And the enemy knows that he picks. His bait for you, just for you to try to reel you in. He wants to ensnare us. It says, then, that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, it brings forth, forth death. You see, when that that. That temptation is conceived, that desire is conceived. The issue, we haven't received the issue there. That that popping into your head when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. But it's not sin yet. You know, you can take every thought captive and not let it go any farther than that. The saying has always been, you can't stop a bird from landing in your head, in your hair. But you can stop it from making a nest. And then James will say, we need to take great care that we are not deceived as well. You know, the enemy is doing a great job of that today in this society because everything's okay now. He's deceived people into thinking that what they're doing is perfectly okay. It's perfectly normal. He's deceived them into thinking. Even people in church, we have, we have churches now that are allowing things, that are, are, are supporting things. They should be. They've been deceived that's something we need to take great care of as well. Don't let yourself be deceived. If it's, if it's not in alignment with the Word of God, then it's not God's will. Hmm. In James 1, 17 through 18, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Do you know that every gift you receive from God is good? We all say yes, right? you know that there some gifts that you receive from God that don't seem good? Even if a gift that you receive from God doesn't seem good, it is still good. Every gift from God is good. We may not understand it at the time. But God only has our well-being in mind. You know, when we first started this church, God said, "You're going to do it in your house." And I, I would have never gone to a home church. They just seemed kind of culty and weird to me. That's me being honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I would have never done this. And God's like, "Oh yeah, you're going to have one in your house." I'm like, really?) Gotcha. I mean, that didn't seem like a good gift at the time. (laughs) I didn't understand. But I see now that God was doing amazing things. What seemed like a a poor gift, what seemed like this can't be right, this isn't going to help anything, has been a great thing. Or it's like when you don't let your kids go out and play in the freeway. They they may think that they're missing out on all kinds of fun, but I mean, that's a good gift that you're giving them so they don't get hit by a car what about requiring your kids to, to be responsible, keep up on the room, and do chores? You think chores are a great gift, Allison? No, she doesn't think they're a great gift. But the truth is, yeah, we're, we're training our children for life because they're going to have responsibilities. They're going to have roles to fill. And if, they don't, if we don't train them, if we don't teach them how to be responsible and do these things, then we've failed them. It doesn't seem good to them at the time, but in retrospect... It will. I remember um, I had a stepdad once who, before uh, he married my mom, I was getting away with everything when I was growing up. I was getting, I was not a great kid. And uh, he came into the picture and just, basically he had done everything I was doing, so he knew how to catch me and everything. And I was, I was getting in trouble all the time. I was grounded nonstop because I kept doing stupid things. Oh, and I hated him at the time. You know, it's like when my kids get in trouble, I try, to expl- I try to logically explain to them the reason why they're in trouble is not because I got them in trouble, because they did something to get in trouble. But as a kid, you don't see it that way. They got you in trouble. And I hated him for a long time for that. And I recognize now that he protected me from so much stuff because of that. I could have gotten so much worse trouble and so many worse things. And I'm a better man today because of that. Amen? But the truth is, yeah, these gifts, they don't seem like they're good for us. Mm. But the enemy, he doesn't give good gifts. The enemy's never going to give you good gifts. And the thing is, the gifts that come from him, they seem good, right? You've seen all these football player with more money than they know what to do with you. Like, man, I wish I had that kind of money. Man, I wish I could do those things. And then we find out later that they they commit suicide. Or, or Robin Williams recently, it seems like he had it all. Money, fame, but he was depressed and ended up killing himself. It was a gift that seemed good, but it really wasn't. Or have you ever seen heard of the stories of people that win the lottery and a couple years later they're broker than they were before they won the lottery? Except for now, they've also got drug addiction and alcohol addiction to go along with it? That money wasn't a blessing to them. In Proverbs 10.22 it says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and He adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, but the key part is, is there's no sorrow added to it. We also begin to see that God is never changing, right? There's no variation or shadow due to change in God. What he says always is. If God says something, when you read it, you can be certain that it'll come to pass. And the way that is important to us, because it's so good to know that we don't have to worry about him liking us today, but hating us tomorrow. We don't have to worry about Him saying that something is good today and something is bad tomorrow. We don't have to worry about saying, you know what, you're welcome in my presence today, but if you slip up and do something wrong, you're not welcome in my presence anymore. Because God doesn't change. And like we studied last week, it says that we find out that God is active in our creation as well. It says of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God was active in your birth, God was active in you coming forth. You were made with a purpose. And then it says we are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In Romans eight twenty nine it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Then in James 1:19 through 21, it says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Have you noticed that today many people are completely op- opposite? Actually, this is the culture today is completely opposite. We don't want to hear what anybody else is saying, because our opinion is the only one that matters. We're quick to speak, though, because, you know, our opinion is the only one that matters and we want everybody to hear it. And instead of being patient with people, we anger quickly because you know, our opinion and contentment and, and our way is the only one that matters. See, this is the result of a, of a me-focused society looking out for numero uno. Or, you know, as long as it makes you happy. That's the result of that kind of society, an entitled society. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. As Christians, we need to be able to be open to what other people are saying, hear what they have to say. And don't just shut them out because, because you think you had all figured out. And it says, "Be slow to speak." You know, it's, uh, the the proverbs. I don't remember where it's at, but basically it says, "Even a foolish man seems wise if he doesn't open his mouth." Because when we talk, we get ourselves into trouble. And then, slow to anger. You know, one of the greatest problems with with society, and even in the church today, is that we we get so easily offended, even when offense was not intended. We get so easily upset at somebody when something happens and we get angry and upset with them when they didn't mean to offend us. They didn't mean to, to hurt anybody. But that's the way we take it. I mean, people church hop because they get upset at one church and like, well, I'm going to go somewhere else. And they go there and then they get offended from there and then they go somewhere else. Because the truth is we get offended so easy. And then he talks about that this anger is is the bad kind of anger. says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, there is a righteous anger. Anger is okay. When we get angry at sin, when we get angry at what sin is doing to people, that's okay. When we get angry because somebody took our seat, our normal seat at church, not so much. That's not righteous anger. That's selfish anger. And James goes on to say, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Because basically that's who you were. That's not who you are anymore. Be done with it. Put it away. You know, he he recognizes that at one time you had it. But he says, put it away. Tuck it away. The Bible actually says you're dead to it now. You're dead to sin and alive to righteousness. A slave to righteousness. And then he goes on to say, Because we receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. You know that being meek is not a bad thing? Because everybody wants to equate meekness with weakness, but they're not the same thing. Jesus was meek. We can all agree on that, right? How many here thinks that Jesus was weak? Good, I thought I was going to have to kick somebody out of the church if they raised their hand just kidding. Yeah, Jesus was meek, but he was not weak. You know, the idea of, uh, I, uh, I was just reading an article uh, about this the other day, and I forget who wrote it, so forgive me, but he said that meekness was like, um, think of a, of a horse that's, being, that's been tamed. The horse still has all the power and strength that a wild horse has, but it's under control, it's kept. It's not just bursting out at the seams. That's that's what being meek is. You know, we can receive the word of God without being weakened. But instead we operate in constraint. We we put away all the filthiness and rampant stuff away. We're not weakened by that. We're actually strengthened by that. What time is it? You know what? We'll go ahead and stop there. We'll finish up uh, next week in about the same place. But... uh, yeah, you know, as we listen to, this, to these messages, we go through the book of James and we found out that, you know, the book of James is, is like you said, the, the proverb for the New Testament. You'll notice that all these things, all this advice for us to live our lives is ways that if we would just act this way, we put away the filthiness, put away the, 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 the bad stuff and live this stuff out. And we begin to live the life that God calls us to live by receiving his word. So let's take that challenge as we live our life. Let's, let's try not to have unrighteous things. Let's try not to be offended. And the way we do that is by spending time in the Word so that our faith grows, our revelation of Jesus Christ grows, and our revelation of who we are in Him grows. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.